and encourage you to turn to Genesis 37. <clears throat> As we continue our review, our jet tour, so to speak, through the book of Genesis, we've come now to a section that is more recent in our discussion, and so it is my desire here today to conclude the remainder of the book in this review that gives us a very sizable challenge in that this is the lengthiest section of this uh, portion of scripture and I know to some degree and call you to consider this to some degree as we go in summary and in review and we take overview having gone through the specifics it's sometimes difficult to to do that and to pay attention and to remind ourselves of what we know kind of like studying for a test. It's sort of fun when you hear the information the first time, but then having to review it several times gets less and less enjoyable. Uh, it might, might seem at times, but I hope that's not the case. There is a sizable amount of material for us to consider, but I think that it is important for us to get this overview and to allow things to settle down within our minds once again. So many weeks have gone into this whole section, so let's try to cover this in one setting together. As I introduced this section some time ago, I will similar words here again today. Some Christians seem to view God as a kindly old man who sits in the heavens and frets his days away between naps. They see God as a loving father with a generous and kind heart. He is genuinely pleased when someone chooses him as Savior or when his children decide to obey him. But when God looks down on this world, and he sees the sin and harsh realities of life here. He blushes with embarrassment. He turns away shaking his head in disappointed disbelief and quiet resignation. He is a nervous and fidgety God who cannot conceive of evil, let alone do anything about it and certainly anything with it. He's a God dedicated to holy things. As we've mentioned and seen many times in our study through the book of Genesis, that vision of God explodes on impact when we come to the book of Genesis. The God we find revealed in the pages of this book is a God who rules supreme over heaven and earth and all the affairs of mankind, good and evil. He is a God big enough and wise enough to providentially steer the actions and decisions of evil people to accomplish his divine purposes, even when those actions are in rebellion against his ultimate purposes and hurtful to his people. In our journey through this book, we have noted time and again that the patriarchal narratives are fairly splattered with the muck of human depravity. This is a story of parental favoritism, of sibling rivalry, of deception, of manipulation, lying, jealousy, envy, even rape and murder. But it is also a story of growing faith under the providential hand of God. A providential hand that not only sees this family sin, but also does something with it, so that in the end he may do something about it. This is a story of remarkable providential transformation of people of faith. We review here our major themes. The first, creation in chapters 1 and 2. The second fall in chapter 3, 
In chapters 4 and following through to chapter 11, we have two peoples, those of those known as God's people or the seed of the woman and those known as the offspring of the serpent. We then discuss patriarchal history and we've looked at these various individuals coming to the last as Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And we've seen in these accounts to this point and we'll continue to see the sovereign God's promises to his people. Those two promises are a land and an offspring. The intense struggle of God's people has also been seen. His chosen people, their struggle to believe those promises in the face of a hostile world against the bent of their own depraved hearts. We enter then upon the home stretch of the book. And we've noted these ten divisions in the book, this Hebrew word toledoth, or the generations of, or the account of. Notice chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. We come then to this tenth and final marker in the book, remembering the Hebrew text doesn't have outlining, but we have here this last marker, this last individual who is to be considered Joseph, and really, ultimately, Jacob through this whole narrative, but much of the uh, focus will be upon the individual Joseph. The narrative continues to go back and forth, or the, uh, the book, rather, between narrative and genealogy. The narrative accounts are stories of faith, of developing faith on the part of God's people. The genealogies tracing the line of God's people and pointing us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now remember chapter 37, verse 1, if you'd note there, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed. The land of Canaan is to go with the preceding chapter. That is, Esau moves away from God's promise and identifies with a location on the fringes of the promised land, if not outside of the promised land. Jacob, in contrast, is a man who lives within the land of promise. So, Verse 2 of chapter 37, then, is where the chapter should divide as we have, again, this major marker in the book of Genesis. This is the account of Jacob. And that leads us to Joseph, verse 2, a young man of 17, tending the flocks with his brothers, his son, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, <coughs> do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream he had what, uh, and what he had said. Then, verse 9, he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. Verse 11, so his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. As we... Take up the life of Joseph. These, this scene and these dreams are very crucial to our understanding of the book. 
This is a time when there is no written revelation. It is a time when dreams and visions often bring revelatory information, and that is the case here. Joseph is convinced about this matter. And as we understand the text of Genesis, these dreams indicate the sovereign election of God. We have seen Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and now Joseph will be chosen over Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. There is a second dream here, which we discover later, means that this is a strong confirmation that the matter is fixed in the mind of God. But rather than submit to God's revelation, Joseph's brothers, of course, seethe against him. They hate him. And we need to watch this. Again, as we view God and learn who God is from this account, does God sit there wringing his hands in heaven and fret? No, the sovereign God will orchestrate the choices of sinners so that these choices accomplish his holy purposes for his people. Things begin to heat up at 37 and verse 12. Joseph is sent on a mission to find his brothers who are shepherding flocks. He's sent on quite a journey northward to the area of Shechem. He gets to Shechem, doesn't find his brothers. Is it bad luck or divine providence? We must determine. There's a man there who happens to have heard where his brothers are going. And that man sends him north to Dothan, 13 miles to the north. In that time, without telephones and without the information that we have, he probably would have just headed home. But in fact, he heads to Dothan, finds his brothers there. They scheme against him, throw him in this well, sell him then as a slave into Egypt. And we have to ask what God is doing. Where is God in all of this? As Ross put it, far from preventing Joseph's dream, the brothers actually become the agents of fulfilling it. We come to chapter 38, and at chapter 38, Judah and Tamar enter into the account. So we leave Joseph off here as he heads down toward Egypt as a slave, and the account turns to Judah. I think for a number of reasons. It's an interruption, in a sense, because verse 36 of 37, chapter 37, will link right up with 39.1. So why this intrusion here in the, uh, about Judah? Well, I think it is because, first of all, Judah plays the definitive role in selling Joseph into slavery. He will also play the definitive role in bringing the brothers back together in reconciliation. And ultimately, Judah will loom large in God's redemptive plan because it is through this man that Messiah will come. So it fits very, uh, a very unique purpose in the book to include Judah here and to draw our attention to this individual, this one among the twelve brothers. <clears throat> the account is a very difficult one to encounter and to interpret. But we learn through this account Judah moves among the Canaanites, he befriends Canaanites, he marries a Canaanite, and we're to understand here that God's promise of a unique people in this land is jeopardized. We learn secondly that Judah, through all of this, is humbled, learning the pain of losing a son, in fact two sons, and the folly of deception. Remember, they're marrying within that land. He gives his oldest son to be married to a woman named Tamar. That son dies through discipline at the hand of God. 
Tamar is given to his second son, Onan, who refuses to do the culturally honorable thing in that day, and that would be to raise up children for his dead brothers, for his dead brother through his wife, Tamar. God kills Onan. At this point, Judah deceives. And he says to Tamar, I'll give you my third son when he is of age, but he has no intention to do so. And he sets her on the shelf. She is set to the fringes of acceptability and culture, and she is really at a dead end. But Tamar, seducing Judah, is impregnated by her, probably motivated far more by culture than any other thing. But she shows to Judah his deception and his sin, and he is humbled. Though this man, through the death of his two sons and through this horrible situation with his daughter-in-law, is humbled. And he comes out from among the Canaanites as really a different man. A third reason, I think, for considering Judah here again, as we've mentioned, and that is that he will be within the line of the Messiah. Because it is through this union, and we have to have room for this, because this is the facts, but through this union, Judah and Tamar, in this horrible relationship, comes Perez. And through Perez, in a very, very close proximity to this area, is born a young man by the name of Obed, and through Obed, David, and through David, Christ. And so we trace the line of Messiah. Now we come back at 39 to Joseph in Potiphar's house. The camera sort of shifts back here to Egypt, and we begin to consider the life of Joseph in slavery. He's sold into slavery to Potiphar, a great official in uh, Pharaoh's court. In chapter 39, we witness the contrasting account now of Joseph, whom God has chosen to get Israel to Egypt, to providentially preserve Israel from intermarrying into the Canaanite culture so as to preserve the lineage of Messiah. He is contrasted with what we have just seen. Judah in the land of Canaan, and uh, involved in sexual sin and deviance there. So chapter 38 then serves as a road marker pointing us to who Messiah is. Chapter 39, a road marker pointing us to what? To what Messiah will do. Namely, he will redeem his people from bondage, that is Israel from Egypt as the paradigm uh, for understanding the ultimate deliverance of Jesus delivering his people from sin. Now back in 15, 12 through 16, God had promised to Abraham that the Israelites would be in Egypt for a very long time. Joseph is the man who is going to get Israel here. Chapter 39, verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. 
So he left in Joseph's care everything he had, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Well, Joseph has lost much. He has lost his home, his culture, his father, his freedom. Really, in ultimate sense, he's lost his entire identity. But God is with Joseph, and God uses Joseph, and in this situation, things really aren't all that bad. When you put it all together, he's in a very privileged position. But the issue is, verse seven, uh, the, the issue is here in chapter 39, in this section, that the Lord is with him. There's a sort of warning sent to us there at the end of verse 6 that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh, and that leads then to a real trial. He's had one major trial, being sold into slavery, and now another. Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph, sees him, and desires to uh, have sexual relations with him. We read down at the bottom of verse 9, however, that Joseph refuses and says, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Day after day she pressures him until one day she becomes enraged with Joseph's resistance and accuses him of rape. Joseph is a slave. He has no right of appeal. And he is thrown in prison, probably because his master knows he's not guilty of rape, otherwise he would have been killed. But Joseph suffers yet another injustice. He's put on ice in the hole. He's put in prison and set away. And the best years of Joseph's life dissipate. From 17 to 30, he's a slave. And much of that time, we would assume, is in prison. How is any of this going to work? How is any of this going to lead to the prophecy of the dream? That his brothers will bow down before him. But we're reminded again, chapter 39 and verse 23, the warden paid no attention to to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph did not pout. This was not a period of self-pity in his life. It was a time when he got to work and served. He served God where he was, and the Lord was with him, even there in prison, through all that he had suffered. But it gets even worse. Chapter 40, <coughs> two servants of Pharaoh, his chief cupbearer and chief baker, are incarcerated for unstated reasons. Both have a dream, and with God's power, Joseph interprets both dreams perfectly. One man will be executed, one will be restored to his former position. God controls the future, and he's chosen Joseph as his servant. Notice verse 23, then, of chapter 40. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph he forgot him. Uh, if hopes could be pictured as a hot air balloon, Joseph probably permitted his hopes to rise. Surely this man knows my character. He knows who I am. Surely he will remember me and surely I will be restored. Brought out of this prison. But that hot air balloon begins to sink as one day turns into another one week into another, a month into another, and one year turns into, in fact, a second year. And Joseph is still there. 
But unbeknownst to Joseph as Walk, he puts it, the closing of prison doors was designed by the Lord to open palace doors, but only in his timing. As we enter chapter 41, then Joseph is a foreigner, a Hebrew in Egypt. He is an enslaved Hebrew. He is an imprisoned, enslaved Hebrew. And now he is a forgotten, imprisoned, enslaved Hebrew in Egypt. There's no hope. Nowhere in this story is there any hope outside of what the author of Revelation reveals to us. The Lord is with him. It reminds us in our life that the Lord is with us as His people, though all circumstances may speak to the contrary. We know the story, chapter 41, one night Pharaoh has a dream in two parts. Pharaoh realizes the dream is revelatory. He goes to his wise men. They cannot answer. The chief cupbearer remembers Joseph, not in the sense that ding, oh yeah, I remember this guy, but in the sense of I've been very negligent here, and I have not put my own reputation on the line is probably the idea to talk about Joseph, but he remembers Joseph in the sense of mentioning him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh summons Joseph, who is shaved and robed and standing now, we can almost see it there, kind of blinking in the light, having come out of prison, he now stands there before the most powerful man on earth at that time. Chapter 41 and verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replies. He sets Pharaoh up there. No, I, I can't interpret dreams, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph very humbly, in a sense, even says, God will choose the way. I believe I'm the one. But it's not with me that these interpretations come, but God will show you the truth. He insists upon giving glory to God in this setting, not promoting himself before Pharaoh and saying, don't you recognize me as a pretty sharp guy? He gives glory to God and he gives the interpretation. Verse 28 of chapter 41. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh having revealed what the, the details of the dream, we don't have time to look to that, but verse 28, it is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been first firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So Pharaoh telling the dream to Joseph, Joseph reveals the answer to the dream very specifically. And the dream is proof, again, that God is orchestrating events. We see these dreams in two that hit us now. Joseph has two dreams. There are two dreams that he considers and interprets while he is in prison. And now there are two dreams from Pharaoh, again with this interpretive idea that these two dreams show that God's purposes stand fixed. Joseph then boldly suggests a plan of action to Pharaoh. I've revealed to you God's intention, and now I have an answer to your dilemma, Pharaoh. I'll tell you what your dream means and I will also tell you what would be wise to do about it. He really sticks his neck out here. 
But Joseph calls upon Pharaoh to create a position in which one man will have power to tax the food of the Egyptians and also ration food. And of course, Pharaoh chooses Joseph for that very position. And so we see the roller coaster ride of Joseph's life. Imprisoned by his brothers, rises to power in Potiphar's house, and at least to a place of a position. He's accused of rape and he goes into prison, lower than he's ever been. And then, perhaps, we could say he rises to position within the prison. But he's forgotten in the prison, and his situation seems to go even deeper into uh, a dead end. But now, in God's grace, this rags-to-riches account, he is elevated before Pharaoh, brought out of prison, and made prime minister of Egypt. It is no Cinderella fairy tale. This narrative is in part a tutorial on how we should interpret our world. This universe is not run by lady luck, by chance or magical powers, or fairy godmothers. It is steered to its ordered end by the hand of a sovereign God. All of this is being done for Israel, right in the gut of Egypt, this pagan nation of great power. At chapter 41 and verse 41, we then see Joseph's meteoric rise to power and prominence in Egypt. We have a public investiture ceremony. He's given Pharaoh's signet ring. He's robed with royal robe and chain. He's driven in a, that's a different kind of chain now, right, around his neck uh, that shows his prominence. He's driven around in this chariot. Runners run before him. He came into town as a slave, and now there are slaves running before his chariot telling everybody to bow down, to make way, to get out of, of his way of this great man, this Joseph, who's been even renamed, given an official name. He's given a wife. In verse 45, Asenath, the daughter of a high-ranking official. So at age 30, after 13 years as a slave, Joseph turns his mighty administrative abilities toward the service of God and Egypt. He utilizes the resources of people, the farmers, possessions, their grain, and time, the present years of abundance, with a discipline fueled by future anticipation, the coming years of famine. He is the ultimate administrator. In the end, the Egyptians will recognize that he single-handedly saved their lives. Verse 25 of chapter 47. And during these years of abundance, Joseph also has abundance of his own. Two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And there is a world of encouragement in those two names. Manasseh, forget. Remember, it's not, I've forgotten what my brothers ever did to me because by naming his son forget, he'll always remember what his brothers did to him. But he is saying, I have forgotten in the sense that I am at peace in God's sovereign plan. I have released them from this. And I, in my own mind, in my own thinking, I am at peace in the grace of God. He names his other son Ephraim fruitful, pointing not to the past as a victim, but pointing now to the present and the grace of God. And if we don't do that, the past can eat up the grace of God in our present lives and blind our eyes to it. Joseph sees clearly. I leave the past in God's hand. I forget it in the sense that I release it and I leave it with God. But in the moment, I can now see His grace and I rejoice in that. Chapter 42, 
We enter now into the whole account of Joseph's brothers meeting with him and the reconciliation that God intends. It had been 22 years since his brothers had sold him into slavery. It's not time that heals things, it's grace. Joseph's wounds could have continued through the rest of his life, but he would not permit it. And he works to this end a plan of reconciliation. So the camera shifts, though, here, first of all, in chapter 42, back to Canaan. There's internal strife in Jacob's family. What's the internal strife? There's a lot of bickering and sibling rivalry, but beyond all of that, we have 22 years of deception going on, 22 years of not telling Jacob what had really happened. There's this nagging conscience that these brothers deal with. There's an external problem, and that is famine. Joseph's brothers appear before him, but do not recognize him as they go to Egypt looking for food. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. Verse 5, so Israel's sons were among those who went down to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. They, however, do not recognize him. And in God's providence, Joseph devises, it would appear there on the spot, something of a skillful plan by which to reconcile his brothers to him. It is an elaborate scheme. It's probably developing as he thinks very carefully through it. And then as they leave, he has time to meditate. But in a remarkable display of wisdom and ingenuity, Joseph follows an unusual course of action toward his brothers. He pretends not to know them but works to see their repentance and to reconcile with them. He essentially stands in for God here to such a degree that we may even speak of the providence of Joseph. But we can see and we remember our little umbrella here, or our, uh, what's the word, rainbow here, of the overarching providence of God, of God's strategy for His people, Israel, but His more precise strategy for, the, uh, for Joseph and the family of Joseph, there's a spiritual famine in that family. They are facing a physical famine, and God working through Joseph orchestrates their reconciliation to solve the physical famine, and secondly, to cure uh, the sin problem that they face. Well, Joseph, pretending not to know them, accuses his brothers of being spies. And as we'll just, uh, we have this charted too, just how he works through all this, all, pretty much all that Joseph suffers, he places his brothers in a situation where they either suffer or are, are, are think they might suffer the very same thing. He puts them in a very similar position through various means. But first of all, he accuses them of being spies, and then he accuses, says that he'll take all of them, put them in prison, he just takes Simeon. I think the key is here is at verse 22 of chapter 42. Verse 22, Reuben replied, now they're talking in Hebrew, they think Joseph can't understand because he's been speaking in Egyptian uh, through an interpreter to them. So they just think they can go ahead and talk. And Reuben replies, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. There's a very awake conscience. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. But Joseph notes that, and he turns away from them, verse 24, and he began to weep. 
but then turned back and spoke again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. And we would assume from things that are said about Simeon that there's a purpose also in that. Joseph now fills their bags with grain. He tells the servant to return each man's money to his sack. They return to Canaan. They report to Jacob. Verse 28 of chapter 42, as they're returning, one says, my silver has been returned. He said to his brothers, here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? They see the big arch. They see the sovereign hand of God in all of this. They realize they're being disciplined. Verse 22, verse 28, what is God doing? Well, they come back to Joseph. They tell him the whole situation. Um, and they tell him that they have to bring Benjamin back. Joseph will have none of it, does not desire to let uh, Benjamin go, and so they have to sit and wait. As we come to chapter 43, though, it is not Reuben, chapter 42, who convinces Jacob, but it is Judah who again stands forward as the one who delivers the convincing argument. And he says to Jacob, we must go back, we have to go back, and there's only one way, and that is to take Benjamin, and I will stand in his place. I will take his position. If anything happens to him, hold me fully accountable. Chapter 43. The brothers travel back with Benjamin. They arrive and showing the honesty and the uh, refusal to be deceptive, they bring their money with them. Verse 22 of chapter 43. They say to Joseph Steward, before they meet with him for a meal to which he has invited them, and they're very shocked about that. As a matter of fact, they're probably pretty scared about meeting with this man after having found all their money in their sack. But they come to the steward and grab a hold of him, so, so to speak, by the by the shoulders and shake him and say, you got to listen to this story. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks, but it's here. We're returning it to you. It's all right, he says. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sack. And I think that it was probably a test. Had they kept the money, all of them having received money, there was no possibility that it was just put in one and that guy lost it. Joseph could have determined that they were still men of deception and men of self-interest. But having brought the money back, he releases Simeon and he looks at Benjamin and he's moved to tears. His full-blooded brother, seeing him after 22 years of absence, this lump of joy lodges in his throat and begins to spill in tears of happiness and relief. He's moved deeply and he has to leave before he can come back and continue his ruse as he seeks to determine the heart of his brothers. The brothers eat, unbeknownst to them, it's a meal of reconciliation. The last time these men had eaten in Joseph's presence, he was under their thumb and under the ground. Now he's on top of the world. They ate at that time while contemplating his murder and eventually selling him into Egypt. He eats now as their benefactor and reconciling agent. A test, again, is seen here in verse 43, I'm sorry, in chapter 43, verse 34, when portions are served to Joseph's youngest brother, Benjamin, and only full brother, he gives five times as much as he gives to anyone else. They feast and they drink freely there in his presence. Unbeknownst to them, 
He is the prime minister. And this prime minister, whom they assume knows nothing about Benjamin, favors him in front of them. This son of Rachel. Will the brothers leave Benjamin enslaved in Egypt? That is the ultimate test. The other brother of Rachel, or the other son of Rachel, will he be left here? Well, the Israelites and the Egyptians eat separately here, I think in some way, perhaps a prophecy of the distinctiveness between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Israel will not grow in a land that is welcoming integration and intermarriage. They will develop as a nation in a land that refuses to integrate and to intermarry. And here we see typified even to eat with them. And so Joseph eats, but he dispatches his servant saying, put this cup, my cup from which I drink, put it in Benjamin's sack. Chapter 44 Verse 7, then he sends the steward after his brothers, but they said to him, Why does my Lord say such a thing when he's accused them of stealing this cup? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves." Pretty bold statement. Well, of course, the cup is found in Benjamin's, in Benjamin's sack. And the test will be then again, will they abandon to Egypt a son of Rachel? Have they changed? The brothers return. And they return in sorrow of heart. They throw themselves at Joseph's feet, showing that there's a change, that God is working in their hearts. And they beg for mercy. At that point, Judah stands forward. By the way, I think they probably could have said to Benjamin, listen, buddy, I don't know what you've done here, but you can go on back. And even knowing that he didn't take it, they could have sent him on back with the steward, and the steward could well have said, listen, he's the one who stole the cup. You guys are free to go. And they could have abandoned Benjamin there, but they don't. They go back, and here in chapter 44, beginning at verse 18, Judah went up to Joseph, and he pleads with him for the life of Benjamin. He will not argue his innocence. He will not even argue Benjamin's innocence. He will argue compassionately for his father, the father who favors Benjamin over him. In verse 33, delivering an impassioned speech, he concludes, 44.33, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. He is sick of his sin. He is sick of seeing his father suffer for his wrong in the account of Joseph. He doesn't want to look in his father's eyes and face this situation ever again. And you see what he's willing to do? This man willing to sell a brother into slavery is now willing to give up his freedom and become a slave in his brother's place. God had used Joseph to reconcile his brothers. The deed was done. And so verse 1 of chapter 45, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his servants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. 
And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I am your brother Joseph, he repeats in verse 4. The one you sold into Egypt. Notice what he says, verse 5. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Do you hold that theology? Is that an operative thinking in your mind? You did wrong, but God intended it for good. God sent me here. Verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God to paraphrase one, from a, wor- from a worm's eye view, Joseph's story reads like a nightmare, a cacophony of outrageous excesses unjustly inflicted upon him. Reason alone might lead us to conclude that history is absurd and our experiences the result of blind chance. But Joseph chooses the heavenly perspective that God is working through him to bring about what is good. Well, so what? Here's the so what. By interpreting life, and especially suffering, as an integral aspect of God's sovereign design, Joseph experienced two profound benefits. Here are the benefits of thinking in this way. First of all, the capacity to be at peace with his past suffering and to forgive his brothers. Secondly, the joy of knowing he was God's servant. Joseph and Pharaoh invite Jacob to come to live in Egypt. Joseph supplies the caravan both ways. The brothers have to break news to Jacob that Joseph is alive. Certainly there's confession there, though that's not the prominent emphasis of the text. Jacob and all his family leave the promised land. Chapter 46, he goes up, and as he does, uh, going toward south, toward Egypt, he stops at Beersheba, verse 2, God speaks to Israel. Jacob, Jacob, verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. This land, and these people in this land, again the promise is repeated. There's a list of those who travel at verse 9. Jacob journeys to Egypt where he is met by Joseph. It's a grand reunion of father and son. Joseph provides for the Israelites there in Goshen. And Israel thrives, chapter 47, in Egypt. There's severe famine that plagues the nation, the area. Yet Israel flourishes. God has planted his nation in Egypt, and in Egypt she thrives. This never would have happened had Joseph not been sent to Egypt. But Joseph, once a slave in Egypt, now enslaves the Egyptians to Pharaoh as God blesses the man in a unique way who blesses Israel. Chapter 47, verse 27. 47, 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. And we say here in context in the middle of a deadly famine where everyone was being taxed to the point of slavery. They prosper. Jacob leaves a legacy of faith. Chapters 48 
and 49. You remember this blessing passage. He first of all blesses Joseph and adopts Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He chooses the to bless in a unique way the younger over the older, identifying with God's plan. But there's another yearning in Jacob's heart. 47.29 47.29 When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. Those are amazing words. The cream of Egypt's wealth is being poured into Jacob's cup, but he chooses to identify not with the riches of Egypt, but with the land of promise. Take my bones back to Canaan. Thus in faith, Jacob blesses the children of Joseph, and nearing death, Chapter 49, he blesses all of his sons. We'll not take time to go through that lengthy blessing. But dying at age 147, he blesses his children, and God uses this prophetically to identify their future. Verse 33 of 49, Then when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Probably the most important idea here in chapter 49 and in this blessing is perhaps verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his, or until he comes to whom tribute belongs, or some other reading there. But it's a clear reference to Messiah. The obedience of not just Israel, but the nations will be due this one. A king will come to whom the nations owe allegiance, and that king will come from the tribe of Judah. Jacob's dying request is to then take him back to this place, verse 29 of 49, 49-29. You see again his, refer, his, his uh, request there to be taken back to that very burial site that Abraham had purchased in the land. Jacob is buried by Joseph in chapter 50. As Joseph journeys to Canaan to bury his father, returns to Egypt, and this leads to another family crisis. Verse 15, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Sometimes when a parent dies, the relationship between the siblings gets very muddy and confused. That seems to be happening here. So they send word, verse 16, to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servant of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. This is the clearest sense of their genuine repentance for their wrong. And Joseph says to them, you must understand, I have not held you accountable. Don't be afraid, verse 19, am I in the place of God? He may have felt that he was at this point. He has been used by God to accomplish righteousness, and he rules in Egypt, but he says, I'm not in the place of God. What does he say, verse 20? You intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it. What's the it? The it is the harm, or the Hebrew evil. 
injury, misery, distress that they caused. Was Joseph wronged? Yes. You did me wrong. You intended it for wrong. It was wrong. It was suffering. But here we witness Joseph's large soul and clear vision. God intended it for good. By permitting his brothers to sell him into Egypt, God moved to use that sin to righteous advantage. Suffering, yes, but good, yes. The good here is the saving of Israel and the blessing of the nations through Israel, part of God's plan. So as Von Rod puts it, even where no man could imagine, God and had all the strings in his hand. So, says Joseph, you forced me to leave my father. You stripped me of my identity. You sold me into a life of slavery. I had no home, no freedom, no roots, no comfort. I was forced to learn another language, stripped from my homeland and culture. Yes, you forced me to walk away from all I knew across a lonely bridge into the dark. But I want you to know, brothers, I found grace on the other side of the bridge. God intended it all for good, and He used your evil to accomplish it. Line yourself up against Joseph's experience. Who among us could give such a list of abuse and suffering? But I think we must come to terms with the fact that this is not an isolated event. This is how God's universe operates. We must understand that no sinner ever schemes alone. No sinner ever plots with sovereign power. And no sinner ever has the last word. This universe is run by a sovereign God who employs all things to accomplish good in the end. Now it is time for Joseph to die. In verse 25, he also makes his family swear an oath and says, God will surely come to your aid. Chapter 15, 12 through 16. Promise to Abraham. And then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, a coffin which 400 years later would go with the Israelites back to Palestine. Jacob ends in faith, and Joseph ends in faith. They identify with a promise to Abraham and Isaac. Like his father, Jacob, Joseph chooses not to identify with the riches of Egypt, though he would have had every right it would have seemed to do so, but he identifies with the promised land. He spends 93 of his 110 years in Egypt. He was one of the most revered of all leaders and could have expected great honor at his burial. But he says, put me in a coffin and keep the coffin mobile because I want you to take me from here. So we think of Joseph, and give me just a few moments just to close. Pearl S. Buck, an author well-renowned in recent generations, once said, I feel no need for any other faith than my faith in human beings. That is a sad admission. I feel no need for any other faith than my faith in human beings. 
First, that is a sad admission because it willfully underestimates the necessity of God. And second, because it blindly overestimates the goodness of man. As those redeemed by Jesus Christ, we say, in contrast, happy is that person who feels the need to trust God. And honest is that person who realizes that people are not always worthy of trust. Do you have to live long on this planet before your faith in human beings suffers severe disappointment? People routinely let us down. Some even hurt us deeply, and sometimes the hurt comes from those we thought we could trust the most. That's life. That's life. But Joseph gives us light. He placed his trust in God and God's sovereign purposes, and he never let go of that confidence. What a message there is for us in how to deal with suffering and how to view life in a world that God runs. We see a message here concerning Israel in the broader picture and God's sovereign purposes with his people. What an amazing God is and how remarkable his plan of providence that he takes Israel and preserves her in Egypt in this unique way so that she will not intermarry, so that she will not be lost, but so that she will be preserved for his purposes. And what are his purposes? Ultimately, that through this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Obed, Jesse, David, will be born one, Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah, Savior of His people and Savior of the Gentiles. So that we come down today in a spot where we can call Abraham our father, not by genealogy, not by human descent, but we call Abraham our father by faith. We walk in the same faith in which he walked, a faith and a dependence upon God who rules heaven and earth and loves his people with an infinite and undying and all-wise love. What a joy and a privilege is ours to say in this fallen world, I trust that God because I must and because it is my great privilege and will be throughout all eternity. How rich we are. Let's bow for prayer as we close our thoughts on this great book. Father, we are thankful for who you are. And words fail to express the beauty of your person, the intricacies of your plans, the deep wisdom of your purposes for your people. God, we are awed in your presence as we consider what you have done for the people of Israel and what you continue to do for your people today who call you God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. 
We thank you for the pointers to this one, Messiah, who would come in the book of Genesis and who has come in our day and has given us life. Lord, the content of the faith has changed, but it's always been the same message, faith in God. May we have that faith with the saints that have gone before, and may we leave behind, like Jacob and Joseph and Abraham, a legacy of unique faith in you. We realize there will be times of trial and disappointment and heartache and betrayal, but I pray that our faith in you would never waver. May we cling to your promises and may we rest in your hand that shadows us and guides us and holds us. We rejoice together today in all that you are and mean to us in Christ and pray now that we will sing with joy of heart as we conclude our time together this morning. In his name, amen.